Our final speaker of the day is the Attorney General of Oklahoma, Scott Pruitt. He holds the merit of, uh, he holds the distinction of seeing the merit in this litigation before any other Attorney General. He was the first to challenge the IRS uh, disputed taxes and spending way back in September 2012. And last month, fairly slowly it seems, a federal district court in Oklahoma ruled for General Pruitt's case and against the federal government. The Obama administration, not surprisingly, has since appealed that ruling to the Tenth Circuit, uh, which will hear oral arguments in January. Scott Pruitt was elected Attorney General of Oklahoma in 2010. His official biography says that as Attorney General, he is dedicated to fighting corruption, which I assume would include illegal taxes, mandates, and subsidies imposed by the federal government. Pruitt established Oklahoma's first federalism unit in the Office of Solicitor General to combat unwarranted regulation and overreach by the federal government and has led efforts to bring attorneys general together uh, to advance policies and legal strategies that protect the interests of their states from an overly intrusive federal government, including a multi-state lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the Dodd-Frank financial regulation law, which is also a great concern of ours here at Cato. Most importantly, for seven years, he was the managing general partner of the AAA baseball team in Oklahoma City. Some honest work. Welcome to the uh, podium, General Pruitt. Thank you, thank you, David. It's good to see you. Thank you. And in fact, was honest work. I enjoyed my time as an owner of AAA baseball. I'm a little bit disappointed about last night's outcome. Uh, of Game 7 uh, of the World Series, but uh, we were rooting for the Kansas City Royals in the central part of the country, and uh, but it was a great series, a great time for baseball. You know, sometimes the mistake is made, and David is from Kentucky, and so he'll, he'll understand this, but sometimes the mistake is made when I'm inter- introduced that I played basketball at the University of Kentucky. I, in fact, played baseball at the University of Kentucky, and then I'll step out from behind the podium, and I'm all of five foot nine, and people say, you didn't play basketball uh, there, and that is absolutely true. Uh, they, they recruit people a little bit taller than I uh, at, at that university. But I want to say thanks to David uh, for the invitation and to, to Michael as well. It is a joy to be here, and my good friend General Zeller, I know, presented this morning. Uh, he and I have not had the opportunity to, to chat yet, but it's good to see you, General, uh, and it's good to have uh, partners and teammates in the room. I, I do want to offer, if I might, I know that you've had many uh, discussion points today on policy, the legal components. If I could offer something to you just generally before I get into the specifics of Oklahoma's case, a, a, a couple of policy statements. Uh, that, that I think are relevant. One, I think we need to remind our friends on, on the left uh, that health insurance does not equate to health care. And, and sometimes policymakers, both at the federal and the state level, believe that they can just simply expand eligibility and expand coverage, and somehow that magically fix all, all, of, all of our health care outcomes in this country. That's just simply not the case. A- at the end of the day, you still need a physician in a treatment room providing care to a patient. And unless a, a, a doctor is willing to take the reimbursement rates that are being paid to him or her, uh, that means that will affect care. In the state of Oklahoma, it's, give me an example. Uh, 14 or 15 years ago when I was in the legislature, uh, the state of Oklahoma expanded eligibility under the SCHIP program and, and increased federal poverty up, I think, at least to 200%. It may have been beyond 200%. And, and so politicians all over the state we're able to go out and say to the constituents, look what we've done. We've provided more health insurance to those that needed it, as if that was going to fix all of these health care outcomes. There were two doctors, two, 
pediatricians in all of the city of Tulsa that were willing to take the reimbursement rate being offered under that SCHIP program and Medicaid expansion. And as such, all you predominantly had was long lines, delayed treatment for those that needed it there in the city of Tulsa. So one, I think we need to remind those in this policy debate that health insurance and health care are two different concepts. But also this, as you expand the role of government, particularly the federal government, but government generally as a payor, then medical inflation is going to continue to rise in a substantial way. You know, we talk about using these programs that are talked about at the Affordable Care Act state level. We need to curtail outflow and cost of, of medical care. And, 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 and what ends up happening is, is a continued expansion of the role of government, which is working opposite of controlling cost. And so just from a policy standpoint, that's not why I'm here. Uh, it's not what I do day to day. It's not what General Zeller does day to day. But, but it is relevant to my comments today, and here's why. Because when, these, when, this, when the lawsuits were initially initiated by attorneys general and by states, the original challenge uh, to the facial unconstitution, unconstitutionality of the law, the Affordable Care Act, in March of 2010, you remember the hue and cry, the criticism that was leveled against state attorneys general. It was a political case. It was to make the administration look bad. Uh, it was an election year, and attorneys general being used as merely a uh, a puppet to go out and challenge the administration to do what? Bring disrepute to the Affordable Care Act. It was political, they said. They also said that it was about policy, the fact that attorneys general didn't like the content of the law. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that if I were in Congress at the time that the law was passed, would have vehemently argued against it and tried to defeat it. But I will say to you, my colleagues, including General Zeller, uh, when these lawsuits have been initiated, fundamentally they are not about politics and they're not about, about policy. They are about something more transcendent, in my estimation, and it's rule of law. I think fundamentally what the cases that Michael and General Zeller and the state of Oklahoma are involved in collectively is, is about something more important than just simply one piece of legislation around health care. And we see this in other fields. David mentioned Dodd-Frank. I mean, we see it in the energy sector, and we see it in the, in the finance sector, as I indicated. And we see a, a, an attitude that really permeates Washington, D.C. today, and the attitude is this. Agencies believing that they possess the authority to improve upon a statute, to change a statute, to alter a statute, to repeal a statute, so long as the results are what we think need to occur, they say, and so long as we think it's what Congress intended, and I'll get to that in a second, we have the authority to change the plain reading of a statute to achieve outcomes that we think are most appropriate. Well, last time I checked, that's not how our system works. Last time I checked, fifth grade civics teaches us that the executive branch exists to enforce the law as passed by the legislative branch. And when the legislative branch passes and adopts a piece of legislation that establishes boundaries for an agency, you don't even get to Chevron deference. You don't get to legislative intent. That's what's so remarkable about the arguments being offered by the Justice Department. They go into these cases as they did in Oklahoma, and they said, well, clearly Congress wouldn't have intended this type of result. We were trying to expand access to health care, they say. And so we can't read the statute that way, really. Then why does the statute say what it says? And, and that really is the, 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 the tug and pull that we've experienced in Oklahoma, and I'm sure Michael has experienced, and, and General Zeller as well, 
Uh, these issues about legislative intent, these issues about policy and politics have not driven, in my estimation, uh, the lawsuits that have been filed. Fundamentally, there are, it, it is about rule of law and making sure that agencies are accountable to the laws as passed by the legislative body. Now, a little history about uh, our lawsuit in Oklahoma. Uh, we actually, I actually filed our lawsuit in January of 2011. Uh, I was elected November of 2010, was sworn in in January of 11. Uh, I joined the coalition of, of 27 other states at that time, filed a separate litigation in Oklahoma. Oklahoma had passed a constitutional amendment in November of 2010 saying that no government, the federal government, could compel the purchase of health insurance. It was an anti-individual mandate provision. Uh, it was ingrained in the Constitution. And so I defended our constitutional provision against the ACA in federal court in Oklahoma. Started litigating the case in January of 11. Shortly thereafter, Judge White uh, stayed the case because of the other case going up to the Supreme Court. So it set dormant until June of 2012. After the decision, uh, the NFIB decision in June of 2012, uh, we did what most states across the country uh, started doing, evaluating the implementation of the law. As you know, and, and this is something that has to be said, because those on the left in the media at times say, we've litigated this so much, why are we continuing to see litigation? The litigation in 2012 that made it to the Supreme Court was about one thing and one thing only. Did Congress have the authority to pass the law? Not whether agencies were, were implementing the law with what? Adherence to the language out of the statute, but whether they had the authority under the Commerce Clause initially. Obviously, the Medicaid expansion was a big part of that as well. The states won on that, uh, giving each state in the country the option, the discretion on whether to set up Medicaid. But that was the facial constitutionality of the law that was the focus of the original decision. Our lawsuit is about something dramatically different. Michael's lawsuit is about something dramatically different, as is General Zeller's. And it's about whether these agencies are adhering to the language and the statute. And so we started evaluating that in the uh, August uh, time frame of 2012. And I know this is going to shock you, but we learned that th these agencies, in fact, were not, and particularly the IRS. And so when we evaluated this healthcare exchange issue, every state in the country had a decision to make under the law on whether to set up an exchange. It was a policy decision. It was not unilateral to the governor. It was legislative and executive branch making a decision on whether to set up an exchange. Congress incentivized, as you've heard, uh, the creation of exchanges at the state level. Why did they do that? Because they couldn't require it or mandate it. That would violate the Constitution in other ways, as you know, a commandeering claim. And so Congress did what they always do when they want the states to act a particular way. They offered money to the states, and they appropriated billions of dollars, uh, one, in the creation of exchanges, but two, they tied the subsidies to the creation of a state exchange. Now, I will say to you that there was policy and political reasons why Congress did that. The policy reason is there were some senators, particularly Senator, uh, the senator from Nebraska, at the time, believed that the federal exchange was a precursor to the single-payer system and was concerned about that and wanted the states to have an active, vibrant role in, in the setting of, uh, uh, of exchanges. But secondly, there was a political calculation by the administration. They wanted to share the responsibility of the rollout of the Affordable Care Act with all the states across the country. We now know why, because they're not very good at it. And they knew it then, and they didn't appropriate the money, and so they wanted all the states with the federal government working toward this implementation. And so when 36 states said no, there was a problem. And unfortunately, 
rather than go back to Congress, which is what the president and those that passed the ACA should do, to fix whatever portions of the law that created this dynamic of 36 states saying no, they took this attitude that I talked about at the beginning. We're just going to improve the statute or change the statute from their perspective and disregard Section 1311 and say that the subsidies can be issued in all 50 states irrespective of the decision, the policy decision that was reserved to the states. Now, that should offend everyone in this room. Whether you're for or against the health care law, whether you're for or against the Affordable Care Act, we should all care about an agency after the fact saying that they have the authority and the power because of a certain circumstance to change the law. And that's, in fact, what the IRS did. So we sued. I amended. We had the only live case in the country from a state perspective at that time. August of 2012, our case was dormant, as I, as I indicated. It was the only live case in the country. We went to the court, uh, amended our complaint, and brought the lawsuit against uh, the agencies in question with respect to the, the rule that was adopted in May of 2012 by the IRS. And that's what we've been doing uh, since that time. Now, David made the comment that, that, um, that things are moving kind of slow in Oklahoma. Uh, I'm just glad that we, had, we got a good outcome in the last two to three weeks. I mean, it, it has been uh, a, a, a period of time that we, we, uh, we've been litigating this, but, but obviously I'm very encouraged about what Judge White said. And I, I do want to call to your attention some comments that Judge White made. Because in his opinion, he addresses this political policy aspect. Because... There are many, in fact, if you go read the briefs in Oklahoma that were filed by the Justice Department, there's, in my estimation, there's more policy discussion than there is legal analysis. It was more trying to shame the court and shame the state for trying to fulfill the statute as passed by Congress. And here's what Judge White said in response to some of those, not intimations, but literally statements that were made in argument as well as in the briefs. An agency's rulemaking power is not to make law. This is, these are direct quotes from the order. An agency's rulemaking power is not to make law. It is only the power to adopt regulations to carry into effect the will of Congress as expressed by the statute. He goes on, the court is aware that the stakes are higher in the case at bar than they might be in another case. The issue of consequences has been touched upon in the previous dis decisions discussed. And then he's speaking of Halbig, speaking of his decision to vacate the IRS rule in Michael's case, the majority in Halbig stated, we reached this conclusion, frankly, with reluctance. He goes on, this is a case of statutory interpretation. The text is what it is, no matter which side benefits. Such a case, even if affirmed on the inevitable appeal, does not gut, quote unquote, or destroy anything. On the contrary, the court is upholding the act as written. Congress is free to amend the ACA to provide for tax credits in both the state and federal exchanges if that is what? The legislative will. That should matter. And it's great to hear a court in this country, a federal judge, say what he said. And I'm hopeful that tomorrow we're on the eve of perhaps a decision uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court to take up uh, the Halbig case uh, to settle this and provide the clarity that's needed across this country. 36 states have said no to an exchange. 36 states collectively have made that decision based upon statutory language and policy considerations. And right now we have what? Uncertainty about the decisions that they have made. And citizens across the country, including employers, 
because we know that the con consequence of not setting an exchange is more than just simply subsidies not being issued to citizens in your state. We know that it also affects the employer mandate because if there is no exchange in your state, then no subsidies can be issued. And if there are no subsidies that can be issued, there is no penalties that can be assessed against the employers in your state. I would also submit to you something that is not talked about quite as much is the individual mandate is affected as well. Because under the Affordable Care Act, there are exemptions that are provided to individuals if your health care costs eclipse 8% of your annual income. The administration knew that as this law was passed, that law, the, the health care costs would rise dramatically, and they wanted to use the subsidies to avoid the eclipsing of the 8% threshold. And so if $700 billion of subsidies are not issued in 36 states, not only is the employer mandate going to be crippled, but many individuals across those states are not going to have to comply with the individual mandate. So this is a critical critical lawsuit because it goes to the heart of whether this administration, these agencies at the federal level can in fact enforce the law as was set up at the beginning. And it is desperately needed for the Supreme Court to deal with this issue sooner rather than later. I'm hopeful that we receive good news uh, about uh, the CERT petition that's been filed by Michael. Uh, we obviously support that. I'm, I, I know General Zeller does as well. And uh, we'll, we'll be there to support that in any way that we can if, in fact, uh, search order is granted. But this is a consequential issue that needs to be resolved sooner rather than later. But I also want to address uh, this argument that was, was made about the, uh, the, I mentioned the policy and the political side of the, the decision to bring a lawsuit uh, and that that was not the consideration and not the focus. But as we got into the litigation, the, the response by the Justice Department was that our argument was absolutely fanciful. It was, it was uh, absurd, actually, is the word that was used uh, because of the, what, impact that it would have. And uh, they took this position that was almost a very arrogant, um, um, full of hubris as it relates to, surely this is not, I can't believe that a state or a plaintiff would actually bring this lawsuit uh, against the federal government in this way. And, and then we found out about what? A video. Y'all have talked about the video, obviously, uh, that was found by Jonathan Gruber. We and, it. And, and, and the audio. I don't know if you, if, if, if you listen to the audio uh, as well. But we, did, we had the ability in Oklahoma to do something that was pretty important. After that video came out and the audio came out, clearly Jonathan Gruber said initially that it was a mistake, uh, that he didn't intend what he said. It's always interesting that people say that. I, I, I know you heard me, and I know I said those words, but disregard really the content and the meaning of those words. Uh, didn't mean that at all. Uh, but then the audio was found later, and maybe subsequent videos as well. But we filed a notice of supplemental authority in our case. Our case was still pending after those videos came down, and, and those videos and that audio, they were not part of any record in any case in the country. And so we had the, the luxury and the latitude when those videos were produced, to actually file a notice of supplemental authority, and, and the judge actually made reference to it in his order. Here's what he said. I thought you might find this interesting. The court permitted the plaintiff, the state of Oklahoma, to supplement the record with statements made by Professor Jonathan Gruber, who is involved in the ACA's drafting. It is evidently undisputed that in January of 2012, 
Professor Gruber made the statement, quote, if you're a state and you don't set up an exchange, that means your citizens don't get their tax credits. What is disputed is whether Professor Gruber's statement was off the, off the cuff, which you, you guys have already addressed earlier today. But he goes on to say, the statement's cut against any argument, and this is what's important. The statement's cut against any argument that the statutory language might support a reading of incentivizing the states to set up exchanges as, as nonsense made up uh, out of whole cloth. So those videos and those, that, that audio, that, that, that capturing of Jonathan Gruber saying that, the court in Oklahoma said, this absurdity that the Justice Department says is the result of the state's lawsuit can't approach that. You can't say that they're making it up out of whole cloth. One of the architects, the consultants, the individuals that walked with the administration to set up the law, actually, at, at a time when the IRS was passing their rule, made an unequivocal statement, states, you're going to be what? Penalized if you don't set up exchanges. Your citizens will be penalized and not have access to subsidies. I think that's pretty persuasive. So just with respect to where we are in our lawsuit, uh, we are, uh, as David indicated, uh, in an expedited uh, statu stature uh, with the Tenth Circuit. The briefs will be filed and finalized as of December 22nd of this year, and the case will be argued in likely the third week of January. And so I'm hopeful that we will see a decision soon thereafter, um, and I hope that's also uh, something that follows the, the cert grant by uh, the court with respect to Michael's lawsuit here in the D.C. Circuit, uh, excuse me, the Fourth Circuit in Richmond. Uh, it has been a pleasure to be with you here today. I'm, I'm glad uh, to be talking about these matters, uh, about important matters, uh, matters of rule of law, and, and, and I know that I began there, but I, also, I want to end there uh, because uh, this issue of rule of law is something that, that I would never have guessed, and I mean this sincerely. I would never would have anticipated three or four years ago uh, dealing with the number of cases that we deal with in the state level of agencies literally having an attitude unapologetically saying they're going to act because they can. Now, I understand Chevron deference. I understand that, and, and, and every attorney in this room understands that, and, and that is something uh, that Congress must deal with. This delegation doctrine, uh, Congress providing they need to be prescriptive, I believe, these days because of the license that these agencies are taking, but that's a story for another day. But on this matter and on other matters, what we have is something different than discretion. We have an agency engaging in a results-oriented approach, ignoring the plain statutory language, and doing so at the expense of checks and balances in our system. And it's creating extraordinary uncertainty in the marketplace, and it must be dealt with by the courts to send a message to the executive branch that they are not able to engage in that kind of practice, not only around the Affordable Care Act, but in other areas as well. So I really appreciate Cato's leadership in putting together the conversation today. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Uh, I hope the next time that we get together that we are celebrating victory uh, in, in, in this important fight for rule of law. And uh, I, I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk today. Thank you, David. Thank you. <clears throat> We have a couple of minutes for questions, and I guess I'd better call on Michael Cannon first. Wait for the microphone. <laughs> Thank you, General, for speaking here today and, uh, and for your leadership on this issue. I, a point of clarification, I'm, 
I've done a lot of research and a lot of reading and uh, speaking and writing about these lawsuits. None of these are my lawsuits. I'm not actually involved with it in any of the litigation. I uh, just comment on it. So credit is due to the plaintiffs in those cases and to the attorneys who've brought them, including in, in King v. Burwell, where the cert petition is before the uh, Supreme Court right now. Thank you. All right, back there. Eyal Moses, no affiliation. Um, I was wondering if the Supreme Court does decide tomorrow to grant cert on King, what does that mean for your lawsuit? Is there is it going to be completely preempted by by King or is there? I, I didn't hear. What, what does it mean to to whom? I'm sorry. To, to your lawsuit, to to your to lawsuit. the Oklahoma lawsuit. Is it, uh, is it going to be completely preempted by the King lawsuit, or is, there, is, there, is it still going to, to proceed? Uh, what's going to happen with the lawsuit if the— uh, Very likely what would happen is if the cert was granted, the Tenth Circuit would obviously uh, pause until the Supreme Court makes their decision. So it would cause our lawsuit to, uh, to probably go into neutral. Uh, unless we tried to use some procedural mechanism to join uh, the King versus Burwell um, cert grant, which is po which is possible, and that's extraordinary, but it, it's a possibility. Well, uh, if the Supreme Court takes the case up uh, and issues a, a, a determination that uh, Oklahoma's perspective, uh, King versus Burwell, and Indiana's perspective is the right view of the statute. It obviously would resolve the issue and preserve the state of Oklahoma's decision not to set up an exchange and would apply the law uh, as a result of subsidies would not be issued, employer mandate would not be assessed, et cetera. So, I mean, uh, we would we'd adhere, we'd adhere to the Supreme Court's determination. Is that, is that your question? They're getting a mic. If, uh, which, if, uh, what, is there any way that your lawsuit, there would still be something happening with your lawsuit if you know, the Supreme Court were to make a decision on King? These lawsuits are some in substance about the uh, uh, ability to issue subsidies uh, through a federal exchange. And if there is a determination by the Supreme Court around that issue, it would apply to Indiana and to Oklahoma. And I would hope that they would resolve it in the way that we view the, the statute. And if they do, then there's victory. It's just that uh, it comes to a different case. Uh, yes, Attorney General Pruitt. Uh, I'm Todd Kafer of freemarketmonkey.com. Um, there's been a talk about, you know, the, if a Habig wins, there's going to be this, this sudden um, affordability vacuum because of the loss of the subsidies. Would you think that a state could... Uh, mitigate that damage by under its authority uh, under McCarran-Ferguson to regulate insurance by making available affordable non-ACA qualified insurance contracts. Well, I take issue number one with this this argument that there would be substantial disruption in the marketplace. Uh, you know, Michael and I were actually on a, a conference call earlier this week, 
I think this is the most, perhaps the most unsettled law in the history of our, I mean, when you think about it, here we are four years post this law, four plus years post this law being adopted and, um, and signed. And I think most citizens across this country want, one, want to see it repealed, but two, it's, it's it, this, because of the initial challenge by the states, I think it's very unsettled. Uh, we have great uncertainty in the marketplace, not because of our lawsuits. We have great uncertainty in the marketplace because agencies are engaging in regulatory overreach. I, I spent time with uh, with hospital administrators in my state, one of whom I asked, how are you making decisions today about deploying capital, hiring personnel, planning, you know, five years in the future as far as how you do business? He said, I cannot because the president himself and the HHS and others change the statute as drafted unapologetically routinely. And so they can't plan, which is what why, why rule of law matters. So I would take issue, number one, with this argument that somehow this litigation is going to be a disrupting force in the marketplace as, as it relates to health care. There's enough disruption in the marketplace already unattributable to our lawsuits. It's all about regulatory uncertainty. This would provide clarity. I think it would also do something else. And, 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 and you mentioned the state level. I think the it will precipitate Congress doing what they should have done already, which is fix the law. And, and, um, and I know there are many in Congress that have talked about that, but this litigation uh, will cause Congress to have to go back and address uh, the, the, the Affordable Care, Care Act in its totality because it goes to the ability of being able to enforce the law and to be able to carry out that which the law intended from the very beginning. So they, I think it will cause Congress to have to start over. Uh, and then the states can make, you know, decisions from there. But in the interim, I think, uh, you know, I, I think states uh, uh, are, are going to be in a very difficult position until there's resolution on the litigation and then seeing how Congress responds. But do you think a state has that authority? What, what, say what authority again do they have? Do you think a state would have that authority under, McCarran, under their regulatory uh, 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 provisions of McCarran-Ferguson to make available non-ACA qualified insurance contracts for their citizens. Now, under the ACA, when the ACA is in place, that would not preclude paying the tax. You'd still have to pay the tax for being in non-compliance. But could a state, do you think, have the authority to make those options available to its citizens? Well, the better, I think the better question is, would that suffice and satisfy the requirement in the Affordable Care Act uh, for qualifying health insurance. I mean, what we're doing here is not that, obviously. Uh, and so uh, you would still have provisions in the law that requires employers to do what? Adopt qualifying health insurance as defined by HHS. What would be missing is the variability of the federal government to enforce that. Uh, and so perhaps states could fill the void with some sort of, you know, tax that they could assess at the local level to provide more access to care for their citizens. But I don't think it's tied to the at all the responsibilities under the Affordable Care Act. We can talk about it offline if you want. It's not something I've really spent a lot. That's just off off the top of my head. But I, I think that uh, that's what I would say to it at this point. Yes. All right. We're going to take one last question up there. Okay, Robert Buck, Health Systems Innovation Network, and um, I, I think what he's getting at is is something like this: if the uh, if if uh, Halbig and King and 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 your challenges are upheld, and the uh, and all this this component of the of the ACA is no longer enforceable in states without a state exchange, and the premium, the unsubsidized premium, goes above eight percent of income for a lot of people. Then a state could authorize the sale of 
non-ACA compliant insurance, just like they had before the ACA, then people could buy insurance and it would be affordable with a lowercase a. They could buy whatever insurance they wanted, wouldn't have to worry about the ACA mandates, and they also wouldn't have to pay the individual mandate penalty unless their income were so high that a compliant policy were available for less than 8% of their income. Is that what I, love the, I love the hypothetical, I love the scenario, but- I mean, this is a health like, policy like issue, not a legal I, issue. No, I guess what I'm saying is, yes, they could, but it's untethered to, to you know, what is really irrelevant to the ACA. That's the whole point. Right, right. So, yeah, they could do that. All right. Thank you, General Pruitt. Thank you to all of our speakers today. There's more information on this at our website, cato.org. For those of you who are staying for lunch, it's upstairs on the second floor. Just take the spiral staircase or the elevator and follow the yellow wall. Thank you.